0: Hello and welcome to this Highlights podcast from Cambridge Bright Club Quantum with me, Ginny Smith. Later on, Stephen Harrison will tell us about the troubles historians have getting a girlfriend. But first, Johnny Bellina laments the lack of science songs in the charts.
1: Where are all the science songs? Why is singing biochemistry wrong? Where are all the science songs? I'd like to know A 100 million love songs written every single day Is it just that love excites the same bits of the brain as music? That's what the neuroscientists say Maybe they'd think differently if they studied my brain My neurons fire rapidly when you talk psychology Seduce me with biology, cosmology, geology Sing to me electrons and kinetic energy Show me your hypothesis and Then please tell me Where are all the science songs? Why is singing astrophysics wrong? Where are all the science songs? I'd like to know Most people get their inspiration only from within Chemical imbalances underneath their skin like anger or depression It's just a dip in serotonin I prefer to talk about observables when I sing The rising of the oceans that is caused by global warming If Pluto is a planet or just a rock revolving The origins of species that are constantly evolving Oh, it's all so inspiring and interesting, so tell me Where are all the science songs? Where are all the singing physicists gone? Where are all the science songs? I'd like to know I tried to get a record deal but no label would bite. They said there was no market for a geek, and they were right. My first release was on the mating habits of trilobites, but no would be buy I don't know why, I thought they might. I sent it to the radio, I sent it to TV. I watched, I waited, hoping, all in vain. You see, I never got transmitted electromagnetically. But now there is a science show that don't mind playing me, so here are all my science songs. Why is singing biochemistry wrong? Here are all my science songs On a science show On a science show right, there we
0: go. Next we welcome Anna de Bruchia, talking about the difficulties that come with being a philosopher and an economist and how we should think of bankers like little boys in a playground.
2: Usually when I'm on a stage like this, um, it's either for boring academic talks or it is for poetry. Um, I have quite a lot of experience with that. The good thing about poetry and the slightly scary thing about this is that you don't have to be funny. Your lines are fixed and also you can expect not more than five people. (laughs) One thing that I always find a little bit daunting when I'm in a room um, with you people is my accent. I can be a little bit self-conscious about that. Maybe you've already heard, there's something, there's something off. There's, something's just not wrong. Um, Maybe not right, I don't know, both probably. (laughs) Sometimes, if I really want to, I can sound like a proper Ohio-bred girl from South Cleveland, because that's where I used to live. But then, if I make some effort, and I can actually see her sit here in the front row, and she's gonna be very mad at me, I may sound like my friend, or at least I think I do. She probably thinks, no, 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 no. (laughs) Um, In reality, I'm just a little bit confused language-wise. I'm Dutch, Belgian, I don't know, please forgive me. One other dilemma that I have about presenting myself is, I am a philosopher and an economist. And the, the, the awful thing is, I have experienced that if I present myself as being both a philosopher and an economist, that breeds as much confusion as speaking about square circles or speaking about Oxford being as nice a place as Cambridge. (laughs) Um, So I decided to not do that anymore, but that leaves me with two other options of presenting myself. First, as a philosopher. And uh, maybe just to uh, give a scoop, I do think I'm more of a philosopher than an economist, but I don't want to be boring and irrelevant. And I don't think about the meaning of life. And maybe, if you don't do so either, maybe you know more about the meaning of life than I do, so please come talk to me. Uh, <laughs> so that's not an option either. But then, being an economist? I'm. I'm I can't really see you, oh, so, so that's a good thing, but if there are economists here, I'm sorry, but I don't want to be someone who crushes dreams, be it with cost-benefit analysis, about education, or healthcare, or housing, whether in the government, or at your local bank branch, I just don't want to be that person. Um, so, then I decided I may just be a philonomist. I get away with not being boring, not being irrelevant, although it is at the expense of sounding crazy and having an imaginary college degree. (laughs) What I do here uh, in Cambridge is a little bit like that. It's a bit philosophy, it's a little bit economics, and a little bit of other things that I'm going to talk to you about now. And the field that I'm in is called HPS. Um, And that stands for History and Philosophy of Science. Well... Actually, I'm not really in HPS. I'm in a field that is much more difficult to pronounce and doesn't even have an ab- abbreviation as nice as HPS. It's called, um, wait, History and Philosophy and Sociology of Science, Technology and Medicine. Yeah, so that doesn't really abbreviate into anything. And if you think now that doesn't that basically cover anything, you're right. <laughs> it does. It does. Although... That also makes me think about my second essay that I wrote this year. And I'm not sure if I have to characterize it as a success or a failure, but I got to my supervising, saying I wanted to write about sex in the Cosmopolitan. And he said, hmm, middle-aged man, yes, that's very interesting, but it's not HBS, yet. (laughs) So I went home. I tweaked my proposal. I threw in some HBS concepts like experimental culture, the normativity of scientific practice, the sociology of scientific funding, and something that is definitely um, something you need to put in about science and society and how they interact. And that can be dangerous and that can be subversive, but it's also very valuable. Um, (laughs) So I went back to my, it's very interesting but not HBS yet, supervisor and he, Uh, signed my proposal and my form and it all went through. But on a meta level, because that's what philosophers do, um, on a meta level (laughs) it made me a little bit sad. I mean, what's your field if you can really do anything that you want? What does it say about what you do? What does it mean? And then I got thinking about other things in life and in other places than Cambridge, in other places than HBS, and I figured it works like that everywhere. I mean, imagine being in the city, at a big financial institution, and you come up with this far out proposal, and your response is, hmm, yeah, that seems quite profitable, but it's a crime, it's not banking, <laughs> yet. <laughs> So, yes, staying in Cambridge has greatly nurtured my creativity. <laughs> so, being an HBS means that you live and work in uh, Free School Lane. I don't know if you know where Free School Lane is, it's this quaint little street, at the back of Corpus Christi College, and we're actually housed in the old Cavendish Laboratory. That's my quantum link. Um, <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> And that old Cavendish laboratory, luckily there's now a coffee room and nice sofas. I don't know if that was there when it was a laboratory, Um, but now there is. And what it is also, it's the birthplace of things like the electron, things like cloud chambers, although I don't really know what electrons do, and (laughs) when I think of cloud chambers, I think of painters, and I think of maybe children's amusement parks, but anyway... That's what the Cavendish laboratory brought um, to the world. And so there I am, studying at this historical landmark, at this birthplace of modern science and maybe even the modern world. And I'm working about women's sexual fantasies in the 70s. (laughs) It's not that I didn't learn a lot. Um, I learned, for instance, about sexist sexologists. I guess that's mainly what it was about. But also I learned about high school principals, about gynecological equipment and furniture, about grandfathers, about supermarket aisles, about border collies. (laughs) Too much. It was really (laughs) too much. (laughs) But that's why I sort of escaped in my latest project, which is not as exciting, but at least it is to me as much fun, and that is metaphors in science. Um, And I think Sam has done a really good job showing what you can learn about quantum by uh, handling some different metaphors. But my argument is that metaphor is actually uh, endemic in science. It's not just a way that we can explain some scientific results or scientific procedures, but it's also endemic in how we do science. And the concepts that we uh, use and develop in science, like think of selection in evolutionary theory. I mean, it's nothing like assembling um, a team for Cambridge Blue or think of light waves in physics. I mean, those waves, they're not made of the stuff that we swim in. They are not the stuff that hug our beaches. That's not what we drink, but they're light waves nonetheless, and they help us to understand um, what light actually is and what it can do. And my thing about metaphors is mostly metaphors in finance. And, well, you could think of finance, maybe this is a hypothetical um, example, as a playground where there's little boys and, I mean, let's be honest, it's mostly little boys who do their game with lots of passion and egoism and they don't really care what happens to their play buddies. If they even have play buddies, they may just do their game by, by themselves. And what happens to the playground? Another way of thinking about finance is finance as an ecosystem. So finance is actually like a species and the life and the death and the prosperity of the species all depend on all the actors and all the actions of the system and not just about the little boys in the playground. Anyway, <laughs> and to me, at, se- uh, at first it seemed a bit far off, but really it is what ha- what is happening in finance departments, it is what is happening at financial regulation offices, it is what is happening in central banks. This is the way that people now think about finance. They're turning into world wildlife funds, I guess. And frankly, I think that is a good idea because I'm sure you've all been to Boxing Day shopping. And if you see the kind of behavior that people then exhibit, that is herd behavior. That are the animal spirits. That's what's happening. And if that is happening on Boxing Day, what do you think is happening in a system where billions and billions and billions of currencies and values that we don't even attach anymore to sorts of currencies go round. I mean obviously that's not to be described by playgrounds, that's to be described by ecosystems. And that I think is why metaphors are so interesting because they can help you to see things differently and also to act differently perhaps and maybe even to clean up some of the mess that we constantly make and we will keep on making um, also by the ecosystem. Um, metaphor. So, yeah, I guess that is maybe why I do philosophy. That is maybe why I hope you do science. Um, And I'm just going to leave you with this as a little metaphor, maybe, for what science is, for what philosophy can be, or even what good comedy can be, which I don't really want to say anything about whether I succeeded or not. It's a piece by Carol Ann Duffy, and it goes like this. What I have learned, I have learned from the air, from infinite varieties of light. Muted colors alter gradually as clouds stir shape till purple rain or violet thunderstorm shudders in the corner of my eye. Here, on this other coast, the motives multiply. I hesitate before the love the waves bear to the earth. Is this what I see? this is the process of seeing. Believe me, soundless shadows fall from trees like brushstrokes. A painter stands upon a cliff and turns doubt into certainty far below the ocean fills itself with sky. I was here to do this, and I was curious. And
0: now back to Johnny for some of those science songs he mentioned earlier.
1: Um, we're doing quantum this evening, which is particularly weird. I, I was w- one of my favourite things about being a physics teacher is actually teaching kids about quantum physics, because um, they just get really confused. <laughs> and then they get kind of upset, and then you go, no, it's okay to be confused, it's confusing. And then you say things like what Richard Feynman said, you know, you say, Richard Feynman said, if, uh, if anyone tells you they understand quantum physics, they're lying. And then they say, why are you teaching me this? <laughs> it's fun. Uh, oh, maybe that's a bit sadistic, actually. Um, quantum world can be a touch absurd Describable in numbers, but nonsense in words Where waves are really particles and particles are blurry What can we infer from all of this? Everett said that there were infinite realities The Copenhagen explanation sounds like insanities With consciousness affecting wavy particle dualities The actualities are rather mysterious It is a principle there ain't no denying So learn from Werner Heisenberg and you will be flying If you want a formula that you can rely on Well, I've got one for you. With Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, you can be uncertain for sure. With Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, you know where you are. And what's more, if you know where you are, You won't know your momentum, even if your Neil's and he's smart, but you can certainly be certain how uncertain you are, sir, with Heisenberg's uncertainty law. So when you're measuring little things, there's a limit to how accurate you're measuring. It's defined by an equation. That equation really swings. So I'll sing it, and you can see that the standard deviation of the positions in precision times the standard deviation of the momentum's imprecision is greater than or equal to h bar over 2. It works the same for time and energy it is a principle there ain't no denying so learn from Werner heisenberg and you will be flying if you want a formula that you can rely on well i've got one for you with Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, you can be uncertain for sure. With Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, you know where you are. What's more, if you know where you are, you won't know your momentum, even if your Neil's and He's smart, but you can certainly be certain how uncertain you are, sir, with Heisenberg's Uncertainty Law. he was one swinging cat, he sure was glad he wasn't Schrodinger's cat, yeah, here we go. Uh, So, okay, so we're going to do a song about Albert Einstein and his theory of relativity, which of course is a very uh, ill-fitting thing to sing on a night about quantum, because relativity and quantum physics haven't been united yet, and that's a problem. (laughs) I do this one as a bit of a sort of a hoedown. Albert Einstein, born in Ulm, in 1879, turned the world of physics upside down by the age of 25. Just a humble patent clerk, made professors nervous by pointing out the speed of light's the same to all observers. Now know that sounds like a very, very, very simple thing to say, then you have to throw all your ideas of time and space away, cause time can shrink, space can grow, depending on how fast you go, and that's okay, that's alright, but you're never, ever, ever gonna break the speed of light. Well, Einstein called his special theory, called it special relativity. Then he showed that energy's the mass times the square of light's velocity, and then he made his theory general by redefining gravity as the curvature of space-time in four-dimensional geometry, so where's a beam of light speeding right across the galaxy. It thinks it's going straight, but that's actually a fallacy, cause light will bend round nearby stars depending on how big they are. That's okay, that's all right, but you're never, ever, ever gonna break the speed of light. Didn't stop my twin brother Billy Bob trying to well, my twin brother, Billy Bobby, always was a bragger, saying he'd be the first to take the speed of light and shatter it. But nobody believed him. They thought he was a gasser. Till the day they signed him up to join the boys at NASA. Then he got himself a rocket ship and flew away. He put his foot down on a pedal, kept accelerating, getting faster, faster, quicker every day, till the Earth was just a dot a thousand million miles away. And I was following his rocket ship in my telescope. But the faster that it got, the thinner he would grow. Getting faster, getting thinner, I hope it would be all right. But he's never, ever, ever going to break the speed of light. Now, you've a hell of a problem, Getting up to light speed. And that's the moment that you get more fuel you'll need. Cause you'll be gaining mass and energy exponentially. Until you're going fast enough that you weigh infinity. So Billy Bob's as heavy as he's ever gonna be. Pulling rocks and planets gravitationally. Relative to me, he was nearly at his goal. But seemingly to Billy Bob, he wasn't any closer. So back he came with his tail and his legs. Eating on a humble pie thinking that the only thing he'd lost was a little dignity and pride. But he'd lost 80 years of my life whilst he'd been gone a night. Now my twin's my younger brother, and he's never, ever, ever going to break the speed of light. <laughs> there we go. Thank you very much, and I will see you in the second half.
0: Although usually dominated by scientists, Bright Club is open to any academics who want to give comedy a go. This month, Stephen Harrison, a PhD student working on ancient Persian kings, was among the acts. I caught up with him to find out more about his research.
3: The ancient Persian empire started in about 550 BC and lasted until 330 BC. And it it was centred on the south of modern-day Iran, but the empire itself at its height stretched from Egypt and Greece and Bulgaria in the west all the way across to modern Pakistan and India in the east.
0: What exactly is it that you research, Stephen?
3: The PhD is about ancient Persian kingship and the idea eventually is to look at whether the ideas that the ancient Persian kings had about how they represent themselves influenced kings in the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East more generally.
0: So what's special about Persian kings?
3: At the time it was the biggest empire in the world and the king was the most powerful man on the planet. So I guess that's the thing that makes it special.
0: And how do you research something like this?
3: Persia's quite a difficult case because most periods of history what we do is we go away and we look at some sources from the period and somebody's written down what happened. And we have some narrative history. And unfortunately we don't have that for Persia. We have a lot of Greeks who wrote about the Persian Empire but they were biased, mainly because Persia had invaded Greece a couple of times. So I can't use any kind of narrative history like that. And so what we do is we look at what I would call the official Persian material, monumental architecture, so big palace complexes. Or we look at reliefs, which are pictures carved into the wall, which show the king supported by his people, for instance. Or we might look at inscriptions, which the king had written, which tell us, some things about how the king wanted to present himself.
0: So what have you found from looking at all these different sources?
3: With the Persian kings, I've looked at, you know, what was the king's role in society? And then I've asked questions about why did he consider himself legitimate? Why was he the right person to rule? And then finally, I've looked at how did the king present his relationship with his people? And I think it's the final part that I've kind of focused on most recently, and that's the part I think I find most interesting.
0: Was the relationship with the people, was it a very much the king is the ruler and he's separate? Or was there a more dynamic interaction?
3: The reliefs that you see will certainly see the king separated from, from the subjects. But what's really interesting is the relationship between the subjects themselves. In, in the ancient years, generally you'll see kings have won a battle. And they'll portray the battle with them standing there slaying one of the enemy. And if you go into the british museum and you look at some of the assyrian stuff that's what you see but in persia it's completely different in persia you'll see the king performing a sacrifice or we think it's a sacrifice the god interacting with the god and he's on a platform and the platform is being carried by the subject people it's a literal expression of the king being supported by his people rather than him oppressing them it's they're supporting him and we'll see texts from a place called Susa, one of the one of the main palaces, where the king says, you know, the Babylonians brought this for me, and the Indians brought this for me, and this helped me construct the palace. And there's very much an ideology that the people from around the empire support the centre. It's expressed in a different way to, to previously, I think.
0: So why would these people be wanting to bring gifts to the king?
3: It, there's a really interesting relationship going on here in that We said earlier on that the Persian Empire covered Pakistan through to Egypt and and Greece. and Within that, there's obviously lots of different groups of people's nationalities, we might call them. And a lot of these peoples had been independent kingdoms prior to to the rise of Persia. And places like Assyria and Babylon had conquered empires of their own. And Persia had come along and conquered them. So all of these people are conquered people. They don't choose to become part of the Persian Empire. A Persian army goes in and defeats them. So that's the underlying reason. But then there's an interesting sense of presentation here because in previous kingdoms, there's points where a king will sort of present himself demanding gifts, as it were. He'll show you know, um, somebody with a spear pushing some little Assyrian along, carrying some gold or something like that. So one reason for giving what we call tribute to a king in the centre of the empire is to acknowledge his political superiority, which he's earned through force of arms. But the Persians don't present it like that. The Persians, they have a big freeze, which is just lots of release put together. And it shows groups of people from around the empire bringing stuff to the king. They're all upright. They're not wearing chains. They're all looking quite happy about themselves. And quite a lot of them are armed. The obvious thing about if you're armed is you can defend yourself. And if you can defend yourself, you don't have to do what other people tell you to do. So they're saying, you know, these men are here because they want to be here. Now, if you have something that you're giving to somebody else and you want to give it to them, we often call that a gift. But gift is quite an interesting concept. If you think about it like this, if it's your mum's birthday, you're going to get her a present. And you want to get her a present because you want to make her happy. But you also know that if you don't get her a present, she's going to be a bit upset. So you kind of have to get her a present. And there's a kind of a bit of obligation there. So the Greeks, when they write about the Persian Empire, really focus on that obligation side, the side which makes the people within the Persian Empire slaves, whereas the Persians focus on this voluntary aspect.
0: Do we have any idea which one was closer to the truth?
3: Certainly, this empire is constructed on the back of military force, and people are always striving for independence, and so there's certainly military obligation. Would there be people who wanted to be part of the Persian Empire? Probably. The Persian Empire brought internal stability. It let people get rich.
0: But if the Persians were just as ferocious as other leaders of empires, why do we think they've tried to present themselves as being kind and supported by their people rather than oppressing them?
3: That It's the million-dollar question to which, unfortunately, there's not really an answer. For centuries, empires have done things differently and had emphasised the subjugation of people. And it's not that there's no... Mention of this in the Persian text is a little bit, it's just not the main overriding focus. Maybe there's something in the history of Persia prior to the empire that would explain this, but unfortunately, we know almost nothing about Persia before it became a player on the global scene, as it were, and so we can't answer questions from that perspective. And as we said, there's no Persian narrative history that might explain it, so really, we just don't have an answer to that question. It might be that there's something in the Persian past that the Persian culture that explains it or it might just be that Darius the first the king who made all of those reliefs maybe it was something a decision that he took with the group of nobles was ruling the empire with and that's as simple as it is and the rest of the kings just thought well that's what's been done for a hundred years now so that's what I'll do yeah unfortunately there's no answer to that question
0: and now here's Stephen set from the night
3: Now, I've not done this for a little while so you'll have to forgive me if I'm a bit rusty. It's a word of advice, fellas, never say that to a girl who's lying naked in your bed. It tends to kill the mood. I say that more as a fantasy than a reflection on reality. It's been quite a long time since I've had the pleasure of a woman's company in that situation. You see, I'm looking for a woman who's erudite, sociable, intelligent, funny, good-looking, basically someone who's faggotronic. And the thing is, I'm 25 years old, and I'm still a student. And that's not necessarily a winning combination. If you imagine the situation, I'm in a bar, and I go up to a woman, and I say, Polar Bear, you what? It's a good icebreaker. My name's Steven, nice to meet you. And we start, we start to have a little bit of dialogue, a little bit of conversation, if you will. And I ask her some questions, and she answers them. And I listen to the answers, and I respond, indicating that I've listened to the answers. And then she turns to me and she says, Stephen, what do you do? And I say, I'm a student. And she hears, the next round's on you. Now every so often there's a woman who falls for this trick and she agrees to the deal that I've proposed and she asks me a follow-up question. So what do you study? Now given the theme of this evening, you're probably expecting me to say that I'm a quantum physicist. I'm not a quantum physicist, I'm a historian. (laughs) I don't really, if truth be told, know what the word quantum means. It strikes me as one of those words that people use to suggest that they're more intelligent than they actually are. It would be a little bit like me, not calling myself a historian, but calling myself a chronologist. (laughs) Or a temporal investigator. So, you know, as I tell her that I'm a historian, I say I tell her I'm a historian, I do find it difficult to have conversations with women in bars. It's not because I'm a shy, retiring type. It's because of an unexpected issue of being a student of the arts. You guys probably have no idea what I do on a day-to-day basis. You probably imagine that I wake up about 11 o'clock in the morning, masturbate, I say you imagine this, I don't use that word literally. (laughs) Finally get out of bed about 12.30, having read the sports news and have me lunch. And then I then begin work at about 2 p.m., finishing time to be in the pub for half past seven. And sort of six days out of seven, that probably is my daily routine. (laughs) But the thing is, I do spend quite a lot of time in libraries now. Don't know if you've ever been in a library, but a library is a place of silence. And if you spend a lot of time in libraries, you kind of forget how to talk. <laughs> so I might see an acquaintance on the street, and they'll be walking towards me, and I'll walk towards them like this with one foot in front of the other, as most people do. And I'll say, hello, mate, how are you? Because I'm adjusted to the library way of speaking. And sometimes I might realise that I'm in the library frame of mind, so I'll walk towards them and I'll say, Hello, mate, how are you? Now, I don't know if you've ever instigated a conversation with either of these two polarities, but if you do choose to instigate a conversation with one of those two methods of speaking, you'll find that it's a short conversation. And you therefore fall into an ever-decreasing spiral of social incapability. And that means talking to people in a bar is a difficult thing for me to do. But, you know, sometimes I'll find a girl who'll give me a chance, and she'll say to me, go on, Stephen, what do you study? And I'll take a deep breath, and I'll say, I study ancient Persian kings. Now, those three words are a big turn-off to anybody Never mind the woman I'm trying to chat up. You hear the word ancient, and you think, it's not relevant. You hear the word Persia, and you think, where the fuck is that? (laughs) The answer is, it's Iran. And you hear the word kings, and you think, he's probably a misogynistic Tory. I'm going to stay well clear of that bastard. Sometimes, every so often, we'll get beyond this hurdle. And she'll say, go on, you know. What are ancient Persian kings like? And I'll say it about, well, ancient Persian kings are a little bit like teenage boys on a first date. They do as much as they can get away with. they kind of, they'll keep pushing boundaries until they're firmly told, no, keep your hands to yourself. Now, if that crass analogy's not earned me a slap, the unfortunate participant in this conversation might say to me, so how do you research ancient Persia? And it's a difficult thing to do because most societies in the past that we know anything about have left us what we call narrative history. Somebody's written down, this happened, then this happened. Not in ancient Persia. To get narrative history about ancient Persia, we have to read things written by the Greeks. Now Persia invaded Greece two or three times. So asking the Greeks what they think about Persia it's a little bit like asking the Daily Mail what they think about immigration. <laughs> I felt this was probably a safe audience to do that joke on. <laughs> so you know, I, I can't I cannot use narrative history. So what I use is mainly I use these things called reliefs. Now reliefs are basically pictures carved into walls which makes moving house Difficult in ancient Persia because you've got to convince the people who are looking around your house that that relief is a relief that's going to stay above your fireplace. How do you look at a relief? Well, I look at a relief and I say, this lad here, he's the biggest and he's wearing a crown. He's probably the king. (laughs) These fellas here, they're all littler than him. They're probably the subjects. Oh, but hang on, all these subjects, they're dressed differently. Well, they're probably from different parts of the empire. And at this juncture, I feel very pleased with myself and my routine. Because the thing is, those things I've just told you, that's high-level research. Some of that is earth-shattering. But when you tell that kind of material in a Jory accent, it don't sound earth shattering. It sounds fucking simplistic, doesn't it? (laughs) So I find it difficult to chat up women using my research, you know? And I say that's how I research ancient Persia, you know, using the reliefs and things. Often, days when I cannot be bothered to get out of bed, I use the internet and I Google ancient Persia. (laughs) Now, my Facebook status says that I'm single. Now when you combine that with Google searches about Iran, you start getting targeted advertising. (laughs) You start getting targeted advertising for www.singlemuslim.com. When I'm having this conversation in a bar, I tend not to bring up the dating websites with the individual. I'm talking to because it makes you sound a little bit desperate. You're probably all wondering actually why I'm bringing, you know, why I'm framing this whole dialogue in the the context of a conversation with an imaginary person. Now, part of it is because this is my tribute to Plato's Socratic dialogues. Some of you might be thinking that this mysterious woman is a useful structural device to tie together some wildly disparate material which would otherwise ultimately fail to convince you of a combined and holistic set but that would be to give me far too much credit. You see the reason I've invented this mysterious woman and I've taken you through all the different problems I have in interacting with women is that all of the women in the audience have hopefully projected themselves into this mysterious spot (laughs) and if any of them are still with me at this moment in time perhaps they will join me at the bar afterwards and buy me that drink that I that I require. <laughs> I should warn you, however, that you know anyone who does want to talk to me afterwards, you have got some you've got some difficult shoes to fill because my ex-girlfriend, you know, I, 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 I'm well and truly over it. You know, it's been a year, three months, three weeks, two days, and a couple of hours, and, and I'm well and truly over it. But she's an absolutely beautiful girl and, you know, she's a great person and she's really good looking. And I'd go as far as to say that she's one of the best looking women that I've ever met and that she's got the face of a divine being. Ganesh. And on that absolutely not bitter note, I will close. I've been Stephen Harrison. Thank you very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this Bright Club Highlights podcast with me, Ginny Smith. Many thanks to Stephen Harrison, Anna de Johnny Berliner, and all the other acts on the night. Now to play us out, here's a brand new song from Johnny, all about the elusive Higgs boson. Tune in again soon.
1: Now the superstitious fear, a broken mirror While scientists choose rationality And yet the one thing that a physicist can simply not abide is when nature shows a broken symmetry so if you've ever tried to weigh a ray of sunlight you'll know that it's a very tricky thing to try cause the photons in a ray of light are massless unlike the particles with mass that go to make up your eye and so it seems the standard model's not symmetrical or its bosons would all have mass the same and so there needs to be a field that will only be revealed by its boson, and the Higgs will be its name. They're looking for the boson giving mass to matter. The model only holds if it exists. The way they're findings by hadron colliding, it's a hell of a way to go hunting for a Higgs. So when they'd finished all their calculations, the only way to solve the mystery was to accelerate some protons and watch as they collide. And the biggest machine that ever was built in all of history, it needed 27 kilometers of tunnel. A hundred meters needs some alpine hills. It took one hundred and eleven nations working in cahoots Cause it's the only way they'd ever pay the bill They're looking for the boson giving mass to matter The model only holds if it exists The way their findings by Hadron colliding It's a hell of a way to go hunting for a Higgs Now hunting out a Higgs amongst the debris of collision It's like looking for a needle in a haystack made of needles When the needle that you're looking for is really an invisible sort of needle That very quickly changes into other types of needle So they need a big computer just to sort through all the needles Do the necessary number crunching needed to determine if a Higgs-like needle needed to be there and the simile's been taken much too far much too far yeah. <coughs> they're looking for the boson given mass to matter uh, the model only it exists the way their findings by hadron colliding it's a hell of a way to go hunting for a higgs yes it's a hell of a way to go hunting for a higgs it's a hell of a way to go hunting for anything at all but especially a higgs
0: So, uh...